Hello, everybody. This is Jeremy from Reasonable Doubts. The Doubtcasters are currently enjoying the beautiful summer that we're having here in Michigan and couldn't make it into the studio last week. But we didn't want to leave you guys empty-handed, so as a bonus episode, we're going to share with you a presentation that we gave a couple months ago to CFI Michigan. The presentation was entitled Reasonable Doubts, Answering the Apologists, and it was about our show. We gave a basic overview of what it is we do on the show and why, and shared some of our favorite moments from the past year and a half of doing Reasonable Doubts. So for some of you longtime listeners, much of what you hear isn't going to be new, but we decided to post it in hopes that some of you will enjoy it. We will, of course, be back next week with a brand new episode. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, or challenges, send those in, as always, to doubtcast at gmail.com. Take care. So tonight we have with us the hosts of the Reasonable Doubts podcast. On the left here, we have Jeremy Bean. He's an adjunct professor at Ferris State University's Kendall campus, teaches classes on philosophy, world religions, biblical literature, aesthetics, and critical thinking. Uh, let's see. Oh, and I also wanted to note that uh, Jeremy went to school at both Grace Bible College and Cornerstone uh, for dual degrees in theology and education, and let's just say that he had a change of heart partway through. <laughs> Dave Fletcher is next to him. Dave is the founder and former chair of CFI Aquinas, um, so kudos to him for that. And he hosted uh, the largest campus debate that we've ever had here, um, something like 200 uh, closer to three. Closer to 300. Uh, people showed up at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday night to hear a debate about the existence of God. Uh, he teaches English and speech, and he's also an adjunct professor of mythology at Kendall College. And he is also an avid uh, theater uh, person. <laughs> theater person. Wow. Um, also known as homosexual. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm not... So, um, I almost thought I just want to bet. <laughs> <laughs> or as my notes say, he works extensively in local theater uh, and is a semi-pro ne'er-do-well. If any of you have seen the, um, the seatbelt commercials recently... Oh, no. <laughs> All right. The guy that's getting beeped at, that's him. Thanks, Jeff. You bet. That's good. So, that's, yeah. that's how I want to be remembered. Yeah. <laughs> so at any time, if you disagree with anyone on the panel, you can beat. Okay. All right, next to Dave, we have Luke Galen. He is an associate professor of psychology at Grand Valley. Uh, he teaches classes on psych of religion, controversial issues in psychology and human sexuality, among other things. He's also the faculty advisor of CFI GVSU. And for those of you familiar with the non-religious identification survey, he is also the person uh, that has spearheaded that. Uh, he will be presenting, actually, the results uh, next month at a conference at CFI in Amherst, New York, um, along with a couple other leading lights in research, um, including uh, uh, 
Oh, now I'm going to blank Zuckerman. on the name. Phil Zuckerman and Barry Cosman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Barry Cosman behind uh, the American Religious Identification Survey, one of the biggest um, surveys of religion uh, ever done. And uh, so, the summary been, of those results, by the way, I'm just going to plug, should be in Free Inquiry's August issue. If you read okay. Free Inquiry magazine, they should have an article uh, published there about those. Yep. So uh, August, September issue of Free Inquiry. Uh, check out the article from Luke. And it's kind of uh, neat that we have all of this stuff uh, happening right here in Grand Rapids. Well, I'm uh, pleased to call these three guys friends, and it's been really interesting to see the podcast develop over time. Uh, When we were still the Free Thought Association, uh, and Bob Goodrich kindly uh, started donating office space to us, part of that space includes a recording studio. And so my thought, of course, was, we've got it. We've got to put it to use. So I challenged a few people to give it a shot, and uh, they did. And we very quickly, though, became part of CFI. And CFI already had a very well-known podcast, and still do, called Point of Inquiry with the DJ Grothy. And uh, so there wasn't a good fit with the lineup uh, of the programs already existing at CFI. So they decided to continue doing it anyway, um, still out of the CFI Michigan office, but not as an official CFI endeavor, and dubbed it Reasonable Doubts. And you can find the website at doubtcast.org. The, um, the ratings have been pretty extraordinary. They have been consistently number one and number two in the other category under religion. So, <laughs> um, And it, it's been really a treat, too, to watch it from the first couple or hear it from the first couple episodes to where it is now. And they have just become very professional, both in terms of uh, their on-the-air banter, as well as the audio production values of it. So uh, I'm really proud of what they've accomplished. Are you trying to say that it really stunk when we started? No, but it has improved. It it did, so don't listen to the first episodes, please. (laughs) So that's how I remember it anyway. Uh, These guys uh, have a knack for hyperbole, shall we say. So their version is a little more epic than perhaps I remember, and I'll let them share that with you. Our story begins in the Netherlands. Ah, the Netherlands. Geographically challenged American youth may know the Netherlands as the home to Amsterdam. What happens in Amsterdam stays in Amsterdam. Unless you try to mail it to yourself, which is a felony. The Netherlands was a refuge for intellectuals during the Age of Enlightenment, but social tolerance and intellectual freedom was not for everyone, namely... The Calvinists. Unwilling to walk a mile in any man's clogs, the Calvinists in the Netherlands looked for a new home, where they could grow their tulips in peace, never being called upon to question or think for themselves again. So they set sail for America. Somehow they landed on the sandy shores of the Great Lakes, coincidentally in a place called Holland, Michigan, where they promptly erected a windmill to commemorate the occasion. Yay! <laughs> Too joyous. Today, West Michigan proudly continues the Calvinist tradition of religious tolerance, embracing in peaceful coexistence both approaches to religion, 
Reformed Protestantism and Dutch Reformed Protestantism. Nowhere is this better seen than in Grand Rapids, crown jewel of the Bible Belt of the North, where a curious young intellect can seek nourishment from many diverse sources, such as Calvin College, Reformed Bible College, Grace Bible College, or Cornerstone University formerly known as Grand Rapids Baptist College. It is this commitment to intellect that makes Grand Rapids home to Amway, Blackwater, and the manufacturers of office furniture used everywhere. Grand Rapidians lived in predestined tranquility for many years until one fatal moment. Hey, nice to meet you. What church do you go to? Um, I don't. <gasps> Maybe there should be a place for me and Free Thought Association of West Michigan was born. Soon their numbers grew. After 10 years of dedication to thought, freedoms, and free thought, the time came for a podcast to be born. But who amongst their ranks would arise to meet the challenge? Luckily, a band of men, smart, young, sexy, and humble, with modest incomes and big dreams, stepped forward. They would create a show that was regional, topical, thoughtful, and would appeal to absolutely no one. Unprepared for the predicament they found themselves in, they did what any underage daughter of a minister would do, and their collective brainchild was promptly and secretly aborted. In time, they became more wise in the ways of the world, and knew that the moment had arrived for a new heroic vision of a better, stronger, more durable podcast. With mediocre hosts, but exceptional theme music. And Reasonable Doubts was born. Reasonable Doubts set out to make its mark. Premature, immature, and with an inflated sense of its own independence. Their youthful rebelliousness making young girls swoon across the globe. Look, I don't know what these boys are telling you, but they only want you for your mind. No, Dad, Reasonable Doubts loves me! That's right, Susan. Reasonable Doubts does love you. That's because, like Susan, Reasonable Doubts offers the whole package. Emotional, moral, intellectual, and sexual appeal. And so our story comes full circle. Like the freethinkers back home in the Netherlands, Reasonable Doubts carries on the tradition of the Enlightenment, promoting scientific inquiry, rationality, and skepticism. Reminding people everywhere that whether you wear shoes, clogs, moccasins, or just go barefoot, you too can be a critical thinker. You too can challenge dogma. You too can refuse to take things on faith. You too can entertain reasonable doubts. As reasonable doubts entertains you. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> That's a little longer than I remember. Yeah, <laughs> very long. And racy. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to throw this out there. Jeremy wrote the abortion line. Um, what the hell? I just should did not. <laughs> that, was you. that was all me. I apologize. <laughs> I, wrote the I wrote the funny lines. Hey, oh. Sorry. Ouch. Well, um, I guess before we get rolling, uh, one thing I was just thinking about right now is we've always kind of complained in the past doing the podcast that one of the difficult things with doing a radio show that, you know, 
it goes over the radio, it goes on the internet and everything else like that, is it feels like we're just sending the show out into the void. We get into mm-hmm. the, uh, the studio and talk together and produce this show, and that's, that's pretty much it. We don't see the people that, we, that are listening to the show ever. We hear from emails and stuff like that, and that's always kind of bothered us. And now not, having... not getting the emails, well, but the uh, fact well, that yeah, we don't no, get the yeah, immediate okay, response. Okay, thank you for yes. clarifying. Yeah, thank you. Uh, we don't have the safety net of editing tonight. Right. Yes. Um, but sending it out in the void, now I'm beginning to like that because <laughs> a bunch of people staring at us is not yeah. as easy. But, it's kind uh, of creepy. The show is Reasonable Doubts, and uh, it's, uh, we have as our, as our little tagline, Your Skeptical Guide to Religion, and that's basically a summary of, of what the show is about. Uh, we try to promote skepticism, critical thinking, the scientific method, um, and kind of as our niche market, we try to steer that, that skepticism towards religion. There's a lot of other really good, successful shows out there um, that deal with skepticism, but they're mostly focusing on claims of the paranormal, alternative medicine, things like that. And all of us have a background in religion, and all of us are... Uh, we all grew up reading apologetic literature mm-hmm. and going to church and going to catechism and all those fun things. And Grand Rapids Christian High School. <sighs> Represent, uh, I me. guess. Um, not me. And we figured, you know, why not use that background to actually um, promote some critical thinking? Because once you, once you go to Bible college and become an atheist, there's not much more you can do with your education <laughs> except debunking. Um, so... That's how we've tried to focus the show. There's a plethora of books out on the market today. You can go to any bookstore and check them out on the subject of apologetics. These are uh, members of different faiths. We mostly focus on Christianity because that's what we are familiar with. And the focus of apologetics, if you don't have any familiarity or background with that, is uh, apologetics focuses on trying to make reasonable, rational claims for the faith or defenses of the faith. It's, uh, it's different from what you sometimes encounter in, in religious people. You ask them, why do you believe? And they say, well, it's just because I have faith. Um, the point of apologetics is to go beyond that. Uh, but oftentimes, a lot of these books that we have up here, they may make rational arguments for the faith, but a lot of times they're based on shoddy reasoning, sometimes discredited science, sometimes outright fraud. We've found instances before where apologists were just lying, plain lying, misquoting sources and that sort of thing, and, and in a way that led us to believe they must have known what they've been doing. Uh, and so part of our role is to join a chorus of voices which are presenting the other side, trying to put other information out there uh, to respond to those types of claims. Uh, At least that's why I wanted to do the show, and I was somehow able to convince these guys to sign on and and join, and maybe you could share a few things about uh, what motivates you to do the show. Boy, I was in it for the money, and um, (laughs) that turned out to be a failure. we don't uh, make any money. We spend no, money, yeah, we, we don't make yeah, we money. spend quite a bit of money. Um, although it parlayed itself into a nice radio job. Thanks, Bob. Um, WPRR sixteen eighty AM. There's magnets in the back. Um, uh, I guess the reason I, I wanted to do the podcast was kind of the same reason I 
um, helped found CFI Aquinas at Aquinas College, uh, where I was going to school. Unlike Jeremy, I didn't convert well at uh, a religious school. I went to a relig- religious school with the intent of starting trouble. Um, and uh, uh, partly the idea is that um, we need this sort of thing. There is so much apologetics, and there is not nearly enough rational thinking, critical thinking about that. Um, especially when you're at a religious college. And I was doing that and knew I was going to graduate at some point, and I thought, oh, I need to ride this. Um, so Jeremy mentioned he was doing a, a thing about doing a podcast, and I jumped on him. He actually made me audition. Do you remember that? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. I interviewed Took me David. out to, to coffee and uh, tested my, my skills of a counter-apologist. And, uh, I think I started off with uh, answer Hume's uh, problem of induction. Yeah. And you went, huh? And mm-hmm. I went, okay, that might be too rough. Yeah, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, and, and we'll talk more as we get, uh, get further on about why we continue to do the show and all of that. But, but originally it was just kind of a... Uh, I think a lot of us free thinkers have the uh, the rebel, the uh, um, troublemaker in us, and that was kind of like, sure, do a counter apologetics podcast from Grand Rapids, sweet. So that was kind of that was the appeal for me uh, in a lot of ways. Luke, I didn't know. Actually, I just learned that I didn't know that you auditioned him. Yeah, how come I wasn't auditioned? Because you have a PhD. <laughs> <laughs> I knew there was a reason I got that. I didn't audition Luke. I begged Luke. That's to right. Be on the show. Yeah. And you're still going to beg to uh, keep me on the <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a lot to add to that because um, my, my, my motivation is pretty much like Dave and Jeremy's, but I think that uh, with my role, as they just mentioned, is I think that I kind of think of myself as the research wing of the podcast where I, uh, since my degree is, is in psychology and I have access to a lot of the facts that the apologetics people use, um, one, of, one large chunk of my motivation is that I resent the fact when people misuse information. So part of my role on the podcast is kind of to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, a, a blunt object or a weapon of <laughs> science that I try to use to cut through the crap um, and, and present uh, accurate science and try to make it, you know, fun and interesting. So I guess that's, in addition to these guys, that's how I see my role on the podcast is to be kind of a, um, a source of information and, and um, science. And you're the only one with legitimate credentials. And I, they true. told me that I have to provide some sort of window dressing to the show of credentials, so <laughs> a thin veneer of, of you know, appropriateness. Yeah. We deal with skepticism towards religion in, a, in several different ways. We have different segments on the show that, uh, that have slightly different focuses. So for the rest of the evening, we're going to share... Uh, what are the different segments we do on the show and just uh, maybe an example or two of the type of things that we talk about. So one of our more favorite segments of, that the fans like is our counter-apologetic segment, which is just when we specifically take on the claim of a specific apologist, usually a Christian apologist, usually about arguments for the existence of God. One of the most popular arguments out there that we often come across and people often ask about is the fine-tuning argument. So maybe some of you are familiar with the fine-tuning argument from design. And the basic idea of the fine-tuning argument is that there are certain physical parameters of the universe. Um, these are uh, I have a list of just a couple of them, but I think there's somewhere out there in the in 40s or 50s, I can't remember, depending on who you talk to, there's a different number of, of Parameters that are supposedly fine-tuned. But these would be things like the strong nuclear force, 
the weak nuclear force, the gravitational force, electromagnetic force, stuff like that. Now, if any of these parameters were uh, the values assigned to them, if any of them were to be altered, even slightly, the universe that we live in, one that's capable of having stars, planets, and life, wouldn't be possible. And so the fine-tuning argument from design says, well, what does that show you? There must be then uh, some sort of intelligence that is behind that. It must, there must be some sort of God that is fine-tuning the universe because how could this arise just by chance? Here's one example of a finely-tuned parameter. This comes from Tanner Edis's book. If the initial expansion rate of the universe had been less than one part in 10 to the 17th power, the universe would collapse back on itself long before life had any chance to form. If it were larger by the same minuscule fraction, the matter in the universe would quickly be dispersed far and wide, leaving a lifeless, mostly empty space. So you can see one part in 10 to the 17th power, that's, that's a very small Itty window uh, for error there. Mm-hmm. William Lane Craig. One of our favorites. Uh, yes. Who also hosts the Reasonable Faith podcast. Which That's is, right. Did he get that from us? Uh, uh, no, no sure he got he it from a book that. of oxymorons. <laughs> um. That's why Dave's on the show, too. He's quick with the... Yeah. With the and, and because I, I know not to wear the same shirt as, as the other two. <laughs> We were actually we actually had to change the order we were going to sit in just to make it balance out aesthetically. The, uh, yeah. Well, William Lane Craig, in addition to being, um, well, I think a fraud, but um, he's also a Christian apologist, and uh, here's one of his quotes from the Reasonable Faith podcast about fine tuning. But now scientists have been stunned to discover that in order for us to exist and evolve, there had to be an elaborately set table in advance, conditions of the Big Bang, he actually accepts the Big Bang, Mm -hmm. probably because it helps him to accept some of these arguments, uh, which are exquisitely fine-tuned for the evolution and existence of intelligent life, and here's a key point, which are so improbable that to try to explain this away as simply an accident of chance would seem to be an act of desperation. So he's setting up the basically our choices between an intelligent designer and <coughs> random chance. We don't know that. We don't know if, if it's set from physical necessity or what's going on. But one of the things we try to do in the show Encounter Apologetics is share the other side. William Lane Craig is using a lot of arguments that have been debunked a long time ago by many, many different sources. They've been adequately replied to, uh, but he uh, does not take that into account, and that follows a pattern that a lot of apologists use. Here's some other information that would count against fine-tuning. For one... Many of these instances of fine-tuning are actually exaggerated. The the units of measurement that they choose to describe can sometimes make those parameters seem more finely tuned than they actually are. Some of you may be familiar with uh, Victor Stanger's book. He has a great little quote in there that I'm going to share for you. He's talking about a finely tuned parameter. If the mass of neutrinos were 5 times 10 to the negative 34th power, uh, greater in abundance, 
you know, the whole universe would fall apart for some reason. And uh, Stenger points out, this is a bit like saying, if he had been one part in 10 to the 16th power of a light year shorter, Michael Jordan would not have been the world's greatest basketball player. That 10 to the 16th, uh, one part in 10 to the 16th of a light year shorter is one meter shorter. Okay, so if Michael Jordan was one meter shorter, he wouldn't have been the world's greatest basketball player. Surely God must have his hand behind that. Well, you can see how ridiculous that is. But a lot of us, when we hear the apologists bring up these fine-tuned numbers, we, we don't really know what they mean. We're not physicists. We don't have the background. And so they seem very impressive. But a lot of that can actually just be done away with. Not all of the parameters would fit that kind of critique. Um, but as others have also pointed out, basically what these apologists are doing is they're treating all these physical constants of the universe as if they're independent of one another. Mm-hmm. So they'll keep all, the con- all these parameters uh, the same, and they'll tweak just one and see what would happen to the universe if you did that. Now, Stanger and Tanner Edis and others have pointed out that's, that's a very <coughs> erroneous assumption. You can't, you can't just assume that these parameters are independent. And so people have tried uh, creating scenarios and simulations where what if you were to instead allow the physical constants of the universe, uh, what if you were to allow them to vary together, not just change one? And when you actually do that, surprise, surprise, actually you can construct many different cosmologies that permit stars, planets, life, that sort of thing to happen. Now, that, to me, that really basically buries the fine-tuning argument. But a lot of that is not, of course, acknowledged or shared by a lot of these apologists. And regardless, one final critique before we move on. Even if the fine-tuning that they claim exists really is true and really is as impressive as they say it is, this is basically a a God-of-the-gaps argument. This is basically saying because something very improbable has happened that's hard to understand and we don't have an explanation for it, therefore we insert God into that. Well, God doesn't explain the finely tuned nature of the universe any more than any other hypothetical construct you could come up with. Um, How could you infer, uh, how could you decide from fine tuning if there was just one God or many? You know, it doesn't establish monotheism mm-hmm. over polytheism. How could you tell that it was actually a, 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 an actual being with intelligence similar to ours, not some sort of design principle in the cosmos? None of these examples actually get you to God. All they do is get you to a gap in our awareness. And this is true, I believe, of most of the arguments that are proposed for the existence of God. Even if you were to just accept the argument, as stated, they don't actually get you to the conclusion that the apologists are trying to get you to. Right. They can't get you to, to the God that William Lane Craig would like you to believe in. They, they can't get you to a God who um, doles out justice, condemns homosexuals, and, and all that stuff. It's just a very, very basic, um, really unknowable kind of force is the best they can come up with. That's not a God that I want to spend much time worshiping. I think their hope is really not to convince the skeptics. I think a lot of times what they're trying to do is give 
reasons to people who already believe to try to prop up and support yeah, their faith. Going all the way back to Aquinas, somebody who doesn't. Thomas Aquinas, the, his proofs for the existence of God are not proof as in scientific evidence. They are arguments for believers to use and to soldier up their own faith. It's not to try to convince the non-believers. They've yet to find an argument that can do that as evidenced by the people in this room, I suppose. All right, so that's uh, one segment that we do on the show. Here's another one. God Thinks Like You is the name we give to the part of the show where we discuss uh, psychology of religion. So this is, uh, uh, this is Luke's baby, basically. This is uh, what, what he deals with. And so there's actually a number of different issues where psychology bears on religion. One of the more common ones that we'll hear from apologists is that atheists are immoral people. They make that claim a lot of times from a scriptural basis. What, what is it? It's the fool that says there is no God. Yeah, there fool is says not it's in his heart that there is no God. God. Yeah. Um, but of course, that's not going to persuade us because uh, we don't accept their scripture. But sometimes they'll go further and they'll actually offer us what we do like to see, and that is data. <laughs> yes, look at this. This is from Rich Deem, uh, who authors GodAndScience.org. He says, contrary to the claims of the new atheism, it seems that atheism leads to a decline in the perception of importance of many personal moral values. And so he provides uh, uh, one, by, one study by a researcher in Canada that talks about moral values of theists versus atheists. And the test is um, how many theists versus atheists will rate these moral values as, quote, very important. On the value of honesty, theists and atheists are kind of neck and neck. Uh, you can see they, they uh, both rate honesty as very important values. Uh, but when you get to kindness, the number goes down. Family life, being loved, you can see that the theists have a higher score than the atheists. This is especially true. Some of the, the lowest ones, uh, sadly, generosity uh, only 37% of atheists are calling these very important values. Uh, another study he brings up is from Barna. Barna is a Christian polling agency, and these are moral behaviors that evangelicals versus atheists admit to having engaged in. Viewing pornography, only uh, surprisingly, only 12% <laughs> of evangelicals... Uh, uh, view pornography, so the high the rest divorce. don't have the internet. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. Uh, whereas 50% are like, yeah, sure, I look at porn. Profanity in public, 16% uh, of evangelicals, atheists uh, will say, shit, yeah, I, I use profanity in public. <laughs> Gambling, no data, but you can see, you can look down the uh, down the row. My my favorite one on the list here is uh, lying. Uh, apparently, only 1% of evangelicals reported on the survey that they, that they uh, lie, and 99% lied about it. <laughs> and no data for the atheists, which is uh, remarkable. Now, now, my favorite part when we, when we get stats like this is throw the stats out there and then let Luke go. It's like a shark with a bucket of chum. Yeah. This is, <laughs> This is great. So care for the metaphor, but yeah. When when Jeremy said we were going to cover this in the episode, I just you know couldn't wait to 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 dirty my hands with all the stats. But um, yeah, this is often. And so just to 
to do the meta shift, we have philosophical arguments that we talk about, but in this sort of thing, you could see that this is not a philosophical argument. It's an empirical or you know argument based on morality. And I'm sure people here in the room have probably at some point in time had this discussion with somebody that said, well, without God, there would be no morality, or when you're an atheist, you're immoral, and, and then they offer things like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and a form of this argument uh, is actually in the in the psychology and the social sciences where people how many people by the way were at the David Myers talk last month was that the, this is the type of thing that, that you have when someone in, uh, cl- uh, clubs you over the head with statistics like this showing that well look at these gaps between your morality and the religious people's morality so there you go um, so I don't even know where to start with that actually I thought the most amusing one somebody either Dave or Jeremy made the comment on the gossiping one of you know okay. you've clearly never been to a, a church function um, if you really <laughs> yeah. don't remember. only 4% Four gossip percent yeah. So just as, as a, a hint to people to where you could go if you're ever confronted with something like this, and that is, is that obviously one difference with these sorts of, of statistics is self-report. They go do surveys of people and ask people, have you ever lied? I mean, what do you, you know, that there's actually a, a gaps in, in people's willingness to admit of having done something wrong based on whether that person is religious or not. Uh, so some of you might have noticed, that's why I asked about the David Myers question, you might have noticed in that, that a lot of the surveys you talked about, people simply ask people, how much do you give to charity? Do you ever mm-hmm. lie? Do you ever steal? Well, if you if just imagine for a second, it, might there be some systematic differences between someone's willingness to be kind of honest in a negative way about themselves? Uh, when you look at behavioral data, and this is w- uh, where you actually do experiments with these things, a lot of these differences, even out or even reverse. So, for example, uh, helping or, or kindness when you do, uh, we cover this in some of my classes, when you do a, a study where you ask people, have, would you help somebody on the side of the road? I mean, you know, what are you going to say? But when they've actually done uh, studies where the person doesn't know they're being observed, and this is something that I think several people tried to make the point when David Myers was talking, uh, and he admitted this, that when you do studies on things like that where the person is being observed unobtrusively, there's no difference between the religious and the non-religious mm-hmm. people. So these are the type of things that, that I kind of point out if you listen to the show that we talk about, and that is is that it's very easy to line up data that look horrible like this and, you know, that that, uh, that intimidate people and admitting, yes, we're not as, as moral. Uh, but actually, if you, you know, one general principle to think about this is ask, you know, look at the evidence, uh, look, look closely, more closely at the studies that the person is, show, is waving in front of your face, and you'll see that it's easy to set up a case where one group looks more moral than the other, but when you start investigating beneath the surface, you see differences uh, that, that are due to things like survey methods or what groups they look at. So that's just one general Yeah, and, and you'll also notice if you look at the, the one on the left, the moral behaviors one, um, there's tons of missing data. They don't have information on, on tons of this. You can't draw the conclusion that more atheists... Or the one on the right. Or... Yeah, okay, my left. Um, stage left. Um, <laughs> the one on the right. Um, there's, there's tons of missing data there. And also you have to take into account the fact that some of us don't necessarily consider these things sins. You know, If it's presented to us, gambling, is that a sin? might be stupid, but I don't know that it's a sin. Also my question is sex with non-spouse. Does that mean married and, and sleeping with someone other than your spouse? Or does that mean premarital sex? Does that, so I think we... Um, we rationalists run into a lot more gray area when we're asked questions like this because we want follow-up. Or, or with these moral values, the, the question was, the, what they chose to measure was how many people rated them as very important. Right. Who's to say that uh, people aren't qualifying their statements in some sort of way? For example, with myself, 
um, when it comes to honesty, I'm going to give that a very high mark. Um, but uh, I, I tend to be a utilitarian when it comes to my ethics. And several of these different things, such as politeness, uh, friendliness, patience, it's going to be highly dependent on, on the context and the circumstances. Sometimes politeness is not always, in my mind, the moral thing to do. So if atheists are going to be qualifying their statements more, um, they aren't embracing an absolutist ethic where everything is very important that has the term moral attached mm -hmm. to it. It's going to skew things. Uh, here's another one. Uh, Luke and I actually had the pleasure of having coffee with this gentleman. Uh, he's an apologist, Stuart McAllister. <clears throat> here's his quote. I know that people will hate this, but you cannot separate theoretical Darwinism from social Darwinism. Because in the 20th century, people acted on these things. If you're going to use arguments that religion is deadly, dangerous, how do you explain Hitler, Pol Pot, Mao Zedong, Stalin? They weren't religious, but they killed on a scale that religion has never had the power to. Pretty common example. If atheism becomes popular, we're, we're all just going to be killing people in the streets. Totalitarian government is, is just around the corner. Yeah, I don't think I've, I've ever had a discussion or a debate where the whole Stalin-Hitler thing ever comes up. Mm -hmm. uh, and actually, I'm at somewhat of a loss. I tried to do an informal survey at one of the picnics we've had about how many people actually have tr you know, an education in the Communist Manifesto and <laughs> Marx, and I'm, I'm kind of weak in that area. So, um, But this is often what people get in debates with apologists, and that is the, the uh, atheistic regime point, and that is that atheism will lead inevitably to mass slaughter because it's all, uh, you know, the ethics would go by the wayside. It's uh, totalitarian, um, and you know we uh, in the podcast in many episodes actually we've dealt on this point in different ways, and you've probably also encountered people that you've debated with as well. But and there's many ways to attack to to respond to that attack. But you know typically uh, one way to do that it was actually um, the, that picture over there is from the Hitchens debate, which was a good debate that we that, that was hosted in the um, Fountain Street Church. But Hitchens always gets criticized for that because he's a was a Trotskyite or. He's, he was at one point a Marxist, uh, and his brother brought that up about his uh, about the yeah. Marxism question or people Hitchens. in the audience. Um, uh, one way to respond to actually that's becoming more common that I like, and that is is that to distinguish between uh, governments or countries that are uh, Marxist or whatever in some sort of official atheistic way imposed upon people, like the Soviet mm -hmm. Union used to be or, or Maoist China, versus what what uh, Phil Zuckerman has called endogenous. I think no, it was Gregory Paul called uh, endogenous atheism. That is, people in the country who just simply choose. Uh, not to be religious uh, in a way, not because the government tells them to, but because it's just not needed anymore. And there's going to be a new book coming out by Phil Zuckerman. I'm blanking on the title now, but basically it's Societies Without God or something like that about Denmark and Sweden. So they're not, you know, uh, Marxist or Stalinist countries. They're socialist. But, um, but these are, are people that have official state churches like the Lutheran Church. But people uh, there on an individual level just simply don't run their lives. Uh, they might go to church for baptisms or weddings. But other than that, they don't really consider themselves religious. So one way to respond to your critiques of this nature is to say, don't think of an example where the 
politicians impose some sort of um, atheism on the populace, but where people choose not to be religious and see what happens in a society. And if ever, any of you have studied or, or, or gone to the Netherlands or Sweden or Denmark or the Scandinavian countries, you've realized that they have a very nice society set up. They're more humane probably in many ways than ours. So in debates, that's a good te- technique is to bring that up. Of what, what, well, let's, let's think about that. What would happen if you had a country where people didn't emphasize religion? Rather than using the you know, red China, use Sweden as an example. You have lower rates of, of, of crime. You have higher rates of things like social uh, welfare systems and uh, happiness. D- Denmark's the happiest country in the world. So that's one way to respond to uh, apologists right there. And the other thing that, uh, is that um, if you remember David Myers again in his talk talked about generosity and giving. It is true that religious people tend to give more money to charity. But one distinction that we talked about in our episode uh, in the podcast was that in our country, uh, individual charities is assumed not to be a governmental function. People give because, and this is some of the data that Dave Myers presented, people give more when they're religious because it's an individual act. In those countries, Sweden, Denmark, and the the, the socialistic countries, they don't view it as something that should be left up to the individual. They view it as something that the government should be doing. And if you look at things like per capita giving by the government to things like charitable aid, foreign aid to Africa, they dwarf our contributions. Uh, So one way to respond to people when they say, yes, but religious people are more generous, uh, the reason those people in those other countries don't give individually as much is because they think it's so important that the government should do it. Uh, and so that's one that's one thing that, way that you can respond to those type of criticisms. A point that Luke brought up when we were talking about that Hitchens episode and bringing up uh, Zuckerman's study and everything uh, was one that that really made sense to me and even kind of changed my mind. Is that a lot of times both athe- atheists do this too? Atheists like to bring up all the terrible things that happened in in the Dark Ages, uh, pre Enlightenment Europe, and everything with these religious warfares. Uh, theists like to bring up Pol Pot and, and Mao Zedong and that sort of thing. And, and what ends up happening is we have like dueling anecdotes, basically. Mm-hmm. We, 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 have, we can cherry pick what parts of history we want to use to condemn the other. Uh, all of those are situations where it's really hard to tease out what is the religious belief versus the actions of, of the rulers of those nations. Uh, uh, what, what is political and what is religious. What, those kind of critiques that Luke brought up are ones that cut straight to the heart of the matter, uh, which is we, we eliminate that extra variable of politics and we just we, we look at, uh, well, I guess we don't entirely eliminate the variable of politics, not with the mm. Zuckermans, but, but we are trying to get at, at the data, not just cherry-picking things from history. Here's a, just a quick list of other kind of social issues that we talk about on the show um, that often feature in God Thinks Like You. One of my favorite episodes is our speechless episode where we critique uh, the documentary by the American Family Association, Speechless, which is basically uh, one long documentary about how um, athe- or Christians are being oppressed for having the courage to tell us that homosexuals are perverts and criminals. So we talk about research on homosexuality. Uh, it is a natural Thing. We talk about abstinence-only education and why it isn't effective, evolutionary origins of religion, uh, the psychological basis for religious experiences such as speaking in tongues or demonic possession. Uh, these are all different things that touch on psychology in some way. Uh, and it really, uh, 
not to stroke Luke too much because I don't think he needs any more no. encouragement. <laughs> but uh, I, I do think his mom is here. She's agreeing. <laughs> I do. I, uh, I do think uh, this. Uh, the God thinks like you. The psych of religion focus we have on the show is one of those distinctive things that I, I don't mm. think any of the other shows. Uh, that are similar to ours in our vein really do. Yeah, so again, just to summarize that, I think that many people that uh, we've done episodes on all these different topics, but I think, again, in your own lives, when you when you debate with people or discuss, uh, share ideas with people, some of the ideas in the social sciences in particular, in the psychology, sociology and things, are often the best responses to critiques of non-religiousness and that is that all these things have been studied we have data on these you know mm-hmm. even in Dave's I think his religious debate one of the girls in the from Aquinas College said what about speaking in tongues and just kind of threw it out there obviously that's a pr- proof of God's existence well you can use social sciences to talk about that yes well what about speaking in tongues you know there's studies of things like how could that be naturally produced it can right. even be imitated in people so that's just one example of how um, uh, often you know you can use data from the sciences to respond to people uh, to critiques of non-religious another segment we have on the show uh, is called skeptic Sunday school and this is similar to the counter apologetic stuff in some way uh, but it's a little bit different in that uh, again like God thinks like you we're mostly focusing on the data skeptic Sunday school it's an attempt to popularize and educate people on a lot of biblical scholarship a lot of the claims of apologists that you'll hear out there are, are some have the audacity to say there's not a single contradiction in the Bible that's been proven. Uh, I think only a, only anything. a few will maintain that. Uh, but many more will, will try to make claims like uh, the, the Bible is a historically reliable document. Uh, people will talk of the four Gospels. These are four independent witnesses, eyewitnesses to the Gospel events. And taken together, all their different accounts strengthen one another uh, I believe it was MacArthur or McDowell. Yes, evidence for, I think it was McDowell who said that the historical witness to Jesus' life, there's more data for him than there is for Julius Caesar, mm-hmm. uh, Plato, any of these things. So these, uh, Now, all of those claims are ridiculous. They're, they're not just wrong. They're not things that just intelligent, informed people can have a, a reasonable disagreement over they're just flat out in contradiction to a bulk of evidence that is you know easy to find but a lot of people who aren't aren't educated in this area aren't professionals aren't going to have access to so we talk skeptic sunday school is our chance to bring some of that research to light one of my favorite sets of episodes which is funny because we almost never did it. Mm-hmm. And it. And it was actually had one of the most positive responses of any set of episodes we ever did, uh, was cross-examining the four witnesses. Basically, we take this idea about the four Gospels being four independent witnesses of Jesus' life. We take this one to task. Uh, now, the truth is that the Gospels are not independently written. And we've known this since the 1800s. <laughs> well, we've, we've probably known that even earlier. If you look at the early church fathers, uh, I think Origen uh, said some, uh, basically didn't believe that these gospels were written independently either. So this is not a new revelation. Large portions of Matthew and Luke are copied verbatim from Mark. They didn't just use Mark as a guide. They, they duplicated the text. If they would have had word processing, they would have cut and pasted it. 
They're, they're, uh, that's why they're called the synoptic gospels because they're so similar. Well, that's why we, are they so similar? That's how we catch plagiarizers and, as yeah. professors. I was going to say, right. yeah. look at the same word count. You know? It's funny you mention that. Uh, uh, I actually had I had a, a girl in my Bible is lit class plagiarize one of her her texts, and uh, um, from oddly enough, from some of the articles that I had assigned uh, to, to class, and I, I said to her, I said, you know, we spent the whole we spent the whole semester studying redaction criticism. <laughs> you think you won't be able to be detected when you take different articles and cut and paste them together and add some of your own little extra stuff to connect it? Well, Jesus Christ, that's what we've been doing this whole semester. <laughs> Art school Jesus students uh, don't like to write papers. Yeah, I no, have learned don't. that. Yeah. Anyways, um, but what's cool about this is we actually, you know, Mark is then a primary source. We know what uh, the gospel writers of uh, Luke and Matthew, what they used as their sources. And incidentally, they're not eyewitnesses. That just comes from tradition. Nowhere in the scriptures does it say they're Mm -hmm. eyewitnesses either. In fact, Luke specifically says that he wasn't an eyewitness to these uh, these accounts. But uh, looking at Mark, what we can do is we can see where Luke and Matthew copied them, and then more importantly, we can see what they actually left out or what they added in that was different, Mm -hmm. or what language they changed just a little bit. And when you actually look at those differences, um, they aren't just random things. They're actually systematic. There are patterns of agreement and disagreement that actually fit the agenda of the individual gospel writers. They point to uh, different conceptions of Jesus. So one great example of this is uh, the baptism of Jesus. Um, When you look at it, In the book of Mark, God says from the sky, um, you are my son with whom I am well pleased. When you look at it in Matthew, he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, that's just one change of a word. And if that was all the evidence you had, that wouldn't seem very convincing. But when you broaden it out and you look then at the consistent differences, you start to realize, well, in Mark, Jesus is the... uh, They call it the messianic secret. Every time somebody seems to figure out who Jesus is, and it's only a few people who end up doing it, he immediately shuts them up and says, no, don't tell anybody. They can't know that I'm the Messiah. They can't know that I'm the Son of God. It's not just demons he does that to. It's people that he heals. Uh, He seems to keep his mission a secret the whole time. The apostles, again and again, don't seem to know what's going on. Uh, and, and the only person he really makes a public declaration to is, is at, his, at his trial, to the people there at his trial. In Matthew, you get a very different look. In Matthew, Jesus is very public, very vocal about his nature as the Messiah. Uh, at the end, Pilate says, this man is innocent. I wash, my, you know, I wash my hands of this. And the Jewish people say, you know, let his blood be on our be on our hands and, and, and future generations. In Matthew, the point is that Jesus was, everybody was accountable to knowing who Jesus was. He didn't keep it a secret. That's why the Jewish people uh, uh, were condemned, those who didn't become Christians were condemned for rejecting Christ. Um, now, when you look at those baptism verses, uh, this is my son versus you are my son, suddenly that difference actually makes sense in the context. And this is uh, several differences like this run throughout the gospel narratives. 
if you were to, uh, we spent, you know, two hours discussing some of them and barely mm-hmm. even got into them. But if you were to uh, run through those different themes, the picture you get developing is that the, the conception of Jesus evolves. In Mark, which is the earliest text, Jesus is not very divine at all. Right. He's a suffering Messiah. His, his, people don't accept him or, or know who he is. In John, he's the son of God. He's equivalent with God himself. Um, and progressing over time, you get, you get a more divine Jesus. This is a big fish story, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, no pun intended. <laughs> and his uh, language also gets more poetic. Uh, Mark is written in very, like, crude. Yes, very crude. Um, and then John Greek. is all flowery and la-di-da-di-da. In the beginning, heaven and the earth, blah, blah, blah. Um, um, here's, uh, here's the end of Mark. This is the original ending uh, on, on the far left side. This is the original ending, probably written around 60, excuse me, 65 to 70 in the common era. The women go to the tomb. They see that Jesus is gone. They don't see Jesus themselves, but they see a, a messenger. It says just a man was there, presumably an angel. He says, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has been raised. He isn't here. Uh, but go tell the disciples, Peter, that he is going uh, ahead of you to Galilee. What, do Mary, uh, what does Mary do? They went out and fled from the tomb for terror and amazement had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Bam. That's the end. The original book of Mark, that's where it closed. Can't trust women with a message. (laughs) Nope. Uh, I'm not saying that. The gospel is saying that. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Very good. That's, That's usually the part in the recording where I would edit. Yes. He won't remember he said this. No. So that's it. They actually have to tack on a separate ending. So when you go to later manuscripts, you get this nice little blurb that tacks on to them at the end. Um, And then, after they were amazed and told no one, then uh, all that had been commanded to them, they told briefly to those around Peter. And afterwards, Jesus came in too and said something. And that was the tacked on end to Mark. Then somebody decided that's not really satisfying either, and tacked on an even longer. This is uh, this is probably in the in the late uh, uh, 100s of the common era. This is like the end of the last Lord of the Rings movie. Yeah, yeah. Ending, ending, ending. And you're ending. just sitting there like this would have been more, way more plausible yeah, if they just geez. wouldn't kept this up. Uh, this is how. You know, people are apparently not satisfied with this ending in Mark. Well, when you get to the other Gospels, you see very a very um, more sophisticated ending, much more satisfying, and it's clear that everybody knows that Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, but what you also get uh, are all sorts of contradictions, too. Uh, just one quick one I want to point out. In the book of Luke, it says... Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, and he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home amazed at what happened. If you look at John's account, it says, Then Peter and the other disciple were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down to look and saw the linen wrappings. The other apostle is a reference to uh, 
the leader of this community, John, who they attributed the gospel to. It's, it's a, this is basically a little favoritism to the leader mm-hmm. of their own sect. Okay, so they were both running just like that other gospel says, but our dude got there first. Now, when apologists try to say, look, all of these people were independent witnesses. They took painstaking efforts to record exactly what happened historically. Uh, this, this isn't the truth. And, and that's this what kind you of would stuff, expect. This kind of happens in a lot of these different variations where it's the different focuses, specific focuses, prejudices, biases, the needs of that community uh, are inserted into these texts. These are not straight his- histories. So that's kind of the thing that we do on Skeptic Sunday School is we bring some of that information to light. And then we try to add things for humor so that people actually are entertained and enjoy listening to Yeah, the show. We, we try. Uh, one of the, the things we like to do on the show is the props and shit list. Um, this is our opportunity to give praise to those who deserve it and heap yes. scorn on those who need it. Um, thumbs up and thumbs down was taken. So exactly. we did cheers and jeers, blah, blah, blah. That was our thing. We so we, we picked a name that we couldn't actually use on the radio. WPRR 1680 AM, um, where we broadcast Fridays at 9 AM. Um, but now and we 6 do the PM. list. Exactly. Um, uh, previous uh, shit list nominees include um, the Dutch Parliament, Barack Obama, uh, the entire state of Texas, except Austin. Um, except Austin, yeah. That's right. And, of course, our all-time winner for the shit list is uh, Pope Ratzinger himself. Shown here with an adorable hat. Um, isn't that like? Isn't there like a ladies' social club where they wear purple and wear hats? Yeah, like yeah, the yeah, yeah. The, the red hat ladies. Don't they call him which... Tex Ratzinger and yeah. He's Tex. Um, and uh, he's been mentioned so many times. I think we're giving him like an honorary, yeah, lifetime slot. achievement award. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think most recently it was because of his statements about how condoms help spread AIDS. Yeah. Yeah, Wonderful. Uh, or they make the problem worse. He didn't yes, say they make the spread, problem, but yeah, they, yeah. they could make the problem worse. Uh, real quick, since the pro- co- crowd's probably a little lefty, uh, why is Barack on there? Barack Obama is on the list because of um, uh, funding the Bush-created faith-based initiatives, mm-hmm. um, which he has broadened to include actually non-religious groups as well, but... We don't like that faith-based Still language. Still giving money to church, though. See, and yeah. that picture that was taken after he heard he was listening to our show, and, yeah. and they, they got him there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and on the props list, actually, the most recent addition to our props list was the Southern Baptist Convention. Uh, so things don't always break down along the lines that you might expect. Southern Baptist Convention actually made it on because they um, came out and said that torture is wrong. Which is refreshing. There's a risky stance. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> and actually, with their kind, it might be. I don't know. A lot of authoritarians and Southern This Baptists. is true. Um, and we've talked about studies where, where uh, religious folk actually tend to favor uh, torture uh, more than non-religious. But um, our, also, I think, going on to the props list tonight is Donald Trump. The Donald um, just fired uh, Miss California. Because of her speaking out about, because she's been on the um, anti-homosexual crusade. I just um, think gays are dirty and different from us. Yeah, <laughs> naked pictures, fake boobs, whatever. Okay, um, there are, uh, are props and shit list, and um, uh, one of the most fun segments for us to do on the show is the stranger than fiction section. Um, this is where we take news articles that are are 
too weird to be believed. Uh, one of my favorites is the Christian salt. Uh, gentleman decided to market Christian salt because he was sick of all these cooking shows using kosher salt. And he thought, well, what's wrong with Christian salt? Because he erroneously believed that kosher salt was blessed by rabbis when, in fact, it just is the size of the grain. It, it draws out the blood, thus making food kosher. Um, and, and he, he also, said he wanted to keep Christianity on the table. He wanted to keep Christianity. Waka, waka. Um, and that's the type that doesn't lose its saltiness, too. So it's, yeah, it's yeah, a biblical yeah. reference. Yeah, it's a, you read the Bible, you'll get it. If this it. was um, youth group, everybody in the room would have been uh, rolling at but that point. But possibly the greatest Stranger Than Fiction story we've ever done is actually the one that we created the Stranger Than Fiction segment for. Um, it came to us right from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the Clasp on America's Bible Bra, as I like to call it. Um, and this was, boy... Uh, last winter um, when um, a woman here in, in Grand Rapids was um, upset because her uh, cement Jesus statue had been kidnapped um, in a and story held for ransom. and held for ransom in a story that we like to call Jesus versus the wiener poopy. Um, she had two little Dachshunds, wiener dogs, and um, they had People had taken her cement Jesus and given a ransom note because she was not cleaning up after her wiener dogs when they went poopy. Um, And the ransom note is the funniest thing you have ever heard in your lives. Well, it's the woman reading the ransom note that was really funny. Um, If you want to see Jesus again, start picking up your wiener poopy um, (laughs) and that sort of thing. I mean, it's... A- absolutely just, just, just deadpan, straight face. She goes, you know, I would have, I would have thought that my Jesus would have been safe, but he wasn't. He wasn't. It was. <laughs> he wasn't. Um, it's, it's absolutely um, amazing. And right here in Grand Rapids, thus underlying our reason to, uh, to do a show like this. Boy, do we have time for? Th- yeah. yeah. Should we skip logos? Yeah, we'll skip logos. Uh, we do this thing called Doubtcast Theater. Every so often. Uh, yeah, it's not that often that we do it, but they're little comic sketches. Like and the piece you heard at the beginning of our presentation. One of them, without our help, has found its way onto YouTube and is, it is currently increasing in hits. Uh, and this is a Logos, which is, uh, if any of you recall, that old show Cosmos with Carl Sagan, one of my favorite sh- uh, science popularizing shows. Uh, we did a version of that with... Uh, Carl Sagan, uh, what if he was Reverend Carl Sagan? What if he was actually a, a creationist uh, and Christian apologist? And so we did Logos with Reverend Carl Sagan. And I think the comments on that, tend to, uh, the, from what I've seen on the YouTube, tend to be pretty positive, but there's a few people who are just like, this is it. a little too real. Yeah. <laughs> well, and this is a little too too creepy. Can't you just to give him a Carl taste Sagan. of it, Jeremy. Just yeah. Let me just say, when he says we did this, this was this all Jeremy, and this is actually, I mean, all to his credit, the Carl Sagan Appreciation Society has actually said that he does one of the best Carl Sagan impressions in the business. Can you give us a little Carl? Just to, Jeremy, it's really hard to do the Carl Sagan uh, just impromptu. Uh, because you kind of have to get into the character, and I'm a method actor, so I'm not doing this anymore. <laughs> so check it out. That's that's. Uh... 
So real quick before we wrap this up, uh, how has the show been doing? It's We're actually amazed that it's doing very well. Just over a year and a half now that we've been doing the show, we have 42 episodes out so far and a handful of different special episodes that, that are uh, guest appearances mm-hmm. and that sort of thing on different shows. Since January, we've been getting somewhere between 7,000 to 9,000 uh, regular downloads for each episode. So that's, that's like our best gauge for how many subscribers do we have uh, who are you know, getting this every week. Somewhere uh, between 7,000 and 9,000, depending on the episode. Um, and as far as our grand total, uh, the conservative estimate is, is uh, 200,000 downloads total. Uh, the actual thing that it tells us is 280,000. But um, I think there's something weird with the numbers. And so until I figure out what's going on, I don't believe that. There's no that way figure. that's justified. No, no. That would, mean, that would mean just about everybody who's listening right now has gone back and downloaded every previous episode. So I don't right. believe that. But the, the numbers are pretty good for what we were expecting. We were expecting virtually no one to listen. Yeah. We have listeners, or we've heard from listeners who live in Canada, the UK, France, Germany, Ireland, Lebanon, China, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, and Texas. I would buy Ireland and Lebanon, but Texas, that's a stretch. Probably Austin. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Um, Um, And frequently number one and number two in the number one or number two slot with the iTunes category. We duke it out with uh, the Freedom from Religion Foundation. Dan Barker. Dan Barker is our major competitor uh, for for that number one slot in iTunes right now. But not everybody loves us. No. Um, We we recently got a a review from a Christian blogger who um, did his list of um, anti-theist podcasts that that he was trying and ones that he had rejected. We made the rejected list along with actually a a really good list of shows. It 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 was was such a proud list. I was glad we were on the rejected list. Um, And he called us, quote, snarky, conversational, and newsy. All of which I kind of took as complimentary. So, um, yay, snark. Um, I'll wrap it up there. I think we're over time. Yeah. Uh, of course, we also do get um, nice letters, too. We should mention, and one of the reasons why I think we, we still do the show is um, a lot of people will write to us who are um, lonely, who are really... Um, that The podcast is a very... Surprisingly, um, positive force uh, in their lives. They will write to us and say, um, "In fact, we just got one earlier we this week." We can tell loneliness or anger by length. Of it, email, absolutely, usually. and we get we get anger too. So when we see a long um, one. We have to scan through it. Like, is this angry or lonely? Yeah, that's right. Um, but we got uh, a woman wrote to us earlier this week who said she's a senior citizen, has been an atheist for thirty or forty years, and is not out about it. Um, and thank you so much for doing this podcast. We've gotten husbands whose wives don't know um, that they're atheist, wives whose husbands don't know. Um, people living in Texas. People living in Texas, <laughs> other communities. We're going to out those spouses on air, aren't we? <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've got the list. Um, I just Put them on a billboard. But uh, we do get a lot of that, and that that's really the thing that, to me, says, you know, when it's getting to be a hassle to do the show, it's like, well, people actually... This is actually helping people. Yeah, a lot of people who really have a desire for community, too, in areas where they, they either can't or there aren't existing communities out yeah. there. Um, 
my my all-time favorite episode, the one that almost broke my marriage, um, was episode... <laughs> Did you say that's true or not true? Oh. No, because she's very patient, but, yes. but any other person it would have. Uh, the one that I spent like approximately two weeks on my porch editing, uh, like, and I mean two weeks Solid. nonstop. He editing. had a bucket. Um, <laughs> Why do you just... I was there. I saw. Uh, was our Long Lake documentary last last year at the at the Long Lake uh, retreat? Before we were like, oh man, Long Lake falls on a weekend. Uh, what do we want to do? How are we going to record an episode? And we're, oh, I know. We'll just bring a field recorder down to Long Lake, and we'll do some interviews. It'll be a cool little this American Life thing. It'll be great. Had no idea that you know, basically ten hours of audio. Editing that down to uh, an hour, yeah, an hour, hour. and we did musical montage. I did musical montages and and everything, and uh, put a lot of effort into it. And within hours of releasing it, I got one of the nicest emails we ever got. uh, Somebody basically saying that you know this is this is some this is the type of thing that they've been looking for. For a long time, that they wanted, they were encouraged to start a group in their area from from listening to the show, or they, they wanted to start a group. Uh, and since then, you know, we've continued. Every once in a while, we we get a, an email, even though this was released a, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while, we get an email from somebody saying that they were just they're really glad to hear uh, the Long Lake documentary. That which is thanks to you guys a lot because a lot of you guys participated in that. Uh, and said, you know, it was just a real encouraging show to them, to people who don't understand atheists, that we are real people, um, that we can have community, that we can have strong bonds and, and support games one Games of Frisbee. Another. And games of Ultimate Frisbee yes. and Capture the Flag. That's right. So um, that's Reasonable Doubts, and I don't know how much longer it's going to last. Uh, it's just kind of... However, it continues to Until progress. Until our heads fall off. So, yes. We are going to go ahead and have a little uh, listen to Carl Sagan before we do the Q and A. It's not the whole thing, is it? It's no, like 11 it's minutes. three minutes of oh, it. Okay. it Whether it's finding long. gaps in the fossil record or discovering the cure for homosexuality, at the Discovery Institute, creation scientists rigorously apply methods of biblical science to a host of evangelical concerns. But perhaps the most astonishing finding comes from studying the Bible itself. Here is a passage from John chapter 4 shown at a hundred times magnification. (laughs) Using the inferior methods of naturalistic science, we would find nothing but ink. Just dark splotches on a page. But let's examine its pages more closely. This time through the microscope of faith. That's the original evangelist. A miracle that utterly defies logic. It seems that Through some as-yet-to-be-identified process, God imparts truth to these letters. When read, this knowledge is then transferred directly into the brain of the believer, via the optic nerve. 
We call this process Photolinguistic Revelatory Transmission, or PRT for short. None of the instruments here can detect PRT rays. In fact, no existing scientific instrument can. From this, creation scientists have inferred that PRT rays are probably composed of spirit. Researchers correctly predicted that the flow of truth would be inhibited when skeptical subjects were exposed to PRT rays. But a shocking and counterintuitive discovery was made when born-again subjects were exposed to Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species. It was found that whatever force is behind the believer's receptiveness to truth also appears to play a similar role in providing immunity to falsehood. But how could this be? Is there a satanic equivalent to PRT rays? Most find this idea very implausible. The one provocative theory that is gaining momentum suggests that faith might act as a kind of semi-permeable membrane, letting in righteous propositions and discarding ones that conflict with true dogma. It is too early to say, but it is fascinating to think that we might soon know the answer. Biblical science puts us face to face with life's deepest mysteries. It gives us the power to answer questions that conventional science wouldn't even consider asking. Say what you will about the Long Lake episode, that is your crowning achievement. For any of you unfortunate enough not to have experienced uh, the Cosmo series, you can now watch it uh, for free on Hulu.com, H-U-L-U, uh, no. the whole uh-huh. series. Yes. Awesome. Uh-huh. And I'm putting a link to the RD20 on our homepage. So if you haven't listened to what that. What is the RD20? Oh, I'm sorry. With a little help from our friends. That's the Long Lake episode. Sorry. Oh, I thought that was the robot who flew the X-Wing. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> that's the robot so you, that's so you, you can listen to it there, which I highly encourage. It's, it's really, I, I find it very moving as a story in and of itself. But, or you can go to their, um, their website. Blo- um, or iTunes. Right, yeah, doubtcast.org. Yes. And come to Long Lake. All right, who would like to question or comment? Hi. Um, I haven't yet listened to all of the episodes, but... Then I don't want to hear from you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, Gren. Um, Talk to the hand. Sorry. Um, Being that the skeptical crowd is often rather homogeneous, I'd like to know what you're doing to attract the ladies. (laughs) You know what? That's... that's, Okay. That's but for one, it's audio, so oh, yeah. we're removing our faces that's, from the mix. <laughs> that was a nice move. Um, no, and it, from the very beginning, people have said, get a female voice on the show, get a female voice on the show. Okay, give us a female. Um, <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. I mean, really, if, if there's a woman out there who can work with our crazy schedule and all of that, gladly. We've looked, and we had, we yeah. had somebody who was on the very first episode with us. And she was smart enough to run away after that yeah, terrible recording session. So it's not for lack of trying. No. Um, and, and we we have, um, we have got a listener, um, a female listener who posted on our blog recently. Uh, this is going back a little while now. And a male listener quick responded, oh my gosh, a female listener, grab on to her. And, <laughs> And, and we laughed because I would say about half of the emails we get are from 
females. Yeah, I mean, it's we really, not quite half, but it's awfully close. It's it's very close. And our you look at our Facebook group, and I'm sure Luke could do statistics for who's on Facebook and all that. But um, but we have we have quite a few female listeners. I think there are yeah. skeptical women doing podcasts out there. I just think we're all feminists. So despite the chauvinist uh, outside. Um, so, I, yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't know what, what we could do in addition to attract female listeners. I mean, we could I don't know. Pic, put pictures of us in our underwear up on the... No, uh, not no. so much. Not I was thinking away. a calendar. Yeah, oh, a calendar. Oh, Skeptudes calendar. <laughs> Holding Bibles over our hearts. Yeah, I don't know. But there are, it, it's, it's actually very encouraging how much female response we get because everyone talks about how there are no women in this movement, especially young women. And, and that's, that's just not it's true. It's not true, as we're finding, and as evidenced by people in this room. Hi. Um, I'm really wondering what your category is on iTunes. I'm just trying to I'm thinking of all these crazy things. Religion and spirituality slash other. Yes. So it's the atheists, the Wiccans, the Jedi's, yeah. and uh, true story. And you know all the cool kids, yeah, who had all the friends in school, duking it out for. Uh, so so that's that's our category. But luckily, that does mean we're not in the same category as Point of Inquiry, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Yeah, some those other guys are in the science ones. category. Right. Uh, those are the really big hitters in yeah. in the skeptical podcasting and radio world. They they are. I mean, they're getting. We measure ours in the thousands. They measure their listens and listeners in the tens and thousands. Yes, and, and we're those, still nowhere near. Those are very rare, and they're long-time and established podcasts. Right at, at number one in our category, we're still nowhere near number one in the Christianity category. Okay, or, or, or when you include, yeah, yeah, all of the religion podcasts. Right, we're, we're nowhere near the top. Yeah, no, no, no. Well, I was wondering with your um, list of comparables, you know, for virtues. Most uh, politicians profess a religious belief. If you applied that list to the politicians, where do you think they'd fall? So that's a, that's a, a, a segment that you could point to a whole group that profess, and then you, you can look at their, their background and their history and see how many people really think that they fall into the, 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 where they fall in those categories, honesty, lies, <clears throat> Yeah, there's only one, actually, I think one openly non-religious politician in the Congress right now, mm-hmm. Pete Stark of, of San Francisco. They, people give periodic surveys to of denominations, and it almost assumes that a person will put down some sort of denomination. Well, then you can also go to the um, religious group themselves, and uh, you have uh, Jim Baker, mm-hmm. uh, Ted Haggard. There, there's a whole list of them there that uh, you could choose from, and, and these are supposedly the outstanding Christians. Yeah, a, a lot of times we find that the loudest moral crusaders are the ones, yeah, Larry Craig, Ted Haggard, these were all you know loudly condemning homosexual activity and then being caught with their pants down. Thank you. <laughs> So now that you're famous with an unpopular cause, um, I'm curious, uh, do, do you get threats? And uh, how many times have you been told that you're going to hell? 
Um, well, we're, we're not Thanks, we're not honey. famous. We're you know uh, that's that's yeah. what if if we, if we take nine thousand regular listeners, if if we were to take like the highest number, those are well distributed throughout the globe. Right. Um, We'd so be canceled on CBS. We're virtually with like we're that. virtually uh, unknown in the larger yeah. scheme of things. But we do. But we do. We're known enough to get a few very angry emails. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we've ever gotten. Threats. I don't remember ever. I, I think the closest we've come is when we did two episodes on free will versus determinism. Yeah, and that was from the atheist. And that was from the atheist. We didn't spend twenty minutes to define every single term that we used. And boy, does that piss well, off atheists! <laughs> you want to upset a group of atheists? You tell them they're determined. Wow. Or the ag- agnosticism. We did like a yeah. ten-minute bit on our last episode, just ten minutes, like uh, mentioning, you know. Uh, are you an atheist or an agnostic or why? And, and we were just talking about the different definitions and which ones we felt more comfortable with. And now there's like people, yeah, really going at each other aggressively on the blog comments right now. Yeah, about the blog is where all so the venom the comes The most out. criticism actually it, comes from our own side, which we invite yeah. and we yes. encourage. And in fact, where it says uh, comment on our blog or where it would say, it doesn't say comment. We changed it to challenge us um, because that's what we do. I mean, that's what's important to our side. Uh, is to is to discuss these differences of opinion. Yeah, you know your listeners are nerds when they have throwdowns over like your epistemology and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> what you haven't even read Wittgenstein? Oh yeah. Where do you get off? <laughs> I don't know. We have very well informed listeners. Yes, yes, too better well, than us well sometimes. Informed. Yeah. I was uh, wondering whether you've considered the possibility that these folks who email you and the the men are, are not telling the truth to their wives and the women are not mm-hmm. telling the truth to their husbands, whether it's possible that they're, in fact, married to each other. <laughs> <laughs> How much happier they both be. That would it, make it would great radio. Of, it would be a little like a Peter Allen song in a way, you know, the one about the pina colada. It, it, it's, it's an... It's a continuing question how many atheists are closeted atheists mm-hmm. in, in the ministry, in the church. I went to a Christian Bible college, and I ended up finding um, four other people that were also atheists. Um, and so it's always kind of – and I've met what we had somebody email us. I think they live in Denver now, and they went to Calvin College. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and – a lot of locals who, uh, well, not a lot from the local religious colleges, but it's happened enough. Yep. And yeah, I, I don't know. It'd be very, I don't know how we would find out. But Personal well, side. If that were the scenario, that we would have a hard, highest ratings ever from doing like a Jerry Springer revelation show about having, well, we have backstage, your husband. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> like that idea. We could add in DNA so testing. So if you know any stories like that, then send them our um, way. Uh, one of the things that got me involved in coming to groups like this was that I had never really believed things, but didn't think much about it or care much about it Mm -hmm. or do much about it. And my uncle died. And I went to the funeral, and we got to the point in the funeral where they say, okay, we're going to pray. And everybody in the room bows their head. And I do what I had usually done, which was, you know, I don't want to be the only one. So I'm bowing my head. And as I'm doing that, I look over at my brother. And he's got his head bowed. And I know he doesn't believe any of this. And I don't believe any of this. So why are we doing this? Mm-hmm. 
I mean, well, where there could be a half a dozen other people, it could be most of the people here. Don't don't go for any of this, and we're all pretending for each other's sake. Doesn't yep. make sense. Well, the the hope <laughs> is is that we're at the at the beginning of, of a movement. I mean, certainly not at the beginning. There's been a free thinking, free thought movement in America uh, since the country was founded. But but with the popularity of these atheist bestsellers, now that it now it's marketable, basically is what it comes down to. The visibility is going up, and hopefully, yes, more people will be coming out and joining groups like these and supporting them. And uh, and we're trying to encourage that on our end the best we can um, by arming people with evidence to talk to their friends, letting people know there's others out there like them who don't believe mm-hmm. either, and encouraging them, go find somebody. Go find a community I to, think to be a part of. The best thing that could happen for us would be like the atheist equivalent of will and grace. Okay, because will and grace, I feel, is really what made people go, oh, homosexuals who don't have sex are A-OK in my book. So as long as we have, you know, atheist funny characters on TV, not threatening ones like House who are smarter than you. Um, but if we had, like, the wacky neighbor who's an atheist on, on more TV shows, um, we'd really be uh, making waves and people would start to admit how, it. How would you do, how would you be the... the Neighbor, who's the? Would he have to come up and say something anti-religious? All you the know, time? no, no, no. He walks in on Sunday because he's expecting them to be there, and he's like, "Oh, where's? Oh, they're at church. That's right. I forgot. I don't go." <laughs> and, that, and, and that would be, you know, ha ha, ha laugh line. Yeah. It's. I just. I'm pitching. I'm working on it. Okay. okay. We'll develop that. Yeah. All right. These three will be at the Long Lake Retreat, so grab a sign-up form on your way out. I believe all three will be at Vitaly's in a few minutes for some drinks and eats, so join us there. Luke's got to go feed his cats. Uh, Sorry. You're not going to go to my kids, but I'll I'll be there briefly. And a final round of applause for the Doubtcasters. (laughs) 